Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. and welcome to Table Manners. I'm Jessie Ware and I'm here with my mum and we've got new headphones and mum feels like... Do they suit me? Does my bum look big in these? <laughs> do you feel like Jenny Murray now? I do. I feel kind of... Yeah, I feel like a broadcaster, darling. Mum, look... Well, I you still like don't know how to speak into your mic, so you aren't there yet. I feel like, oh, Ruth's got a phone across oh, the road. Okay, we are doing a podcast. <laughs> Mum's just uh, nosing on the neighbours. Anyway, we have a really exciting guest today. He's tuning in from Washington, D.C. And he's the... Well, Mum, you introduce him. Well, he is probably considered to be one of the most professional and talented correspondents for the BBC. What did my dad say about him? Hold on, I'm just going to tell you. So my dad is a journalist. He is top of the range correspondent. His coverage of Trump has been superb. Brackets, and he's Jewish. Lachaim! <laughs> One of our own. So we have John Sopel on the podcast. Uh, you would have probably seen him on the BBC usually late at night, corresponding from DC. And he's written a whole book about... A fabulous book called Unprecedented. Which is all... well the, About politics, pandemics, and the race that trumped all others. It's kind of like a diary. The detail is amazing, because I've, I've read it. And um, he, he must have kept a diary right the way through, which makes me think maybe I should keep a diary of my <laughs> journey. Today... <laughs> I, had I had a poo. Had, no, today I had soup. <laughs> today? Yeah, what would Jesse it, came he's over? He's lucky. Yeah. It's amazing he's got so much content given there was a pandemic. It's mostly about his professional life, really. A bit about his family, which is really interesting. So, John Sopel coming up on Table Manners, dialing in from DC. John, thank you so much for... What time is it where you are now? It is uh, 20 to 9 in the morning. Okay. Oh, have you had your breakfast? Well, it's coffee and croissant time. So, you know... So, you know, there's a lovely little French patisserie just up the road. And it really is properly French. And I can even go in there and speak French in there. Well, badly. And, um, yeah, so you get your, get my croissant, get my coffee, and I'll do that once we've finished. But you've had a bit of a night because you've just had your first grandchild <laughs> born. Yeah. So you've probably yeah. not slept. It's probably as stressful as election night. Well, we have been on tenterhooks. Uh, for a little while, waiting for the news because uh, the baby was four or five days overdue. Uh, but my son and daughter-in-law, they live in Sydney, Australia. And um, and she's Australian. And so um, we've been waiting for news. So uh, the news came last night. I have a granddaughter, which is spectacular. Mm, uh, thank you very much. And it's very, very exciting. 
And I just fear that she'll be doing her A-levels by the time we're able to get to Australia <laughs> to go, go and meet her. I mean, it's tough, but, you know, there we are. It's fabulous news. It's every parent's nightmare that your son will go on gap year and then meet an, an Australian. I, I Is I that what happened? They actually met. They were at university. My son was at university in the UK. She was at an Australian university. And they went to America. They both met in an American university at UMass, University of Massachusetts. And um, we kind of thought, oh, Australians. And she, she came to live in London uh, for five years and it was fabulous and we adore her. And uh, But then they bloody well moved back to Australia. And Australia and they're is laughing fantastic. now, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. So, well, I mean, they're living normal lives. And yeah. They kind of hear about all the craziness that we're going through on a daily basis. And look, they're blessed. They have taken a very tough, aggressive approach uh, to people getting into the country, which means, you know, I have no idea when we'll be able to get in. Uh, but within Australia, people are leading pretty normal lives that are untouched by COVID. You know, this was this is a really big moment in your family's life. Is there, being a correspondent, have you had to sacrifice and miss quite a few moments or have you kind of been lucky? Because I, I can only imagine, because you have to be in, you can't be in two places at the same time, so. No, there, there have been moments where, uh, yeah, I've missed out on things. I, I was just laughing because I think if my wife was answering this question, Linda would say, yeah, absolutely. You were never, never there for swimming lessons. You were, never, you were never bloody there for this. You didn't turn mm. up for that. You missed the school play. And I would say I was there for everything that mattered, which is my narrative, and I'm sticking to it. Um, <laughs> there was a famous occasion where I'd been covering... Um, the war on the Israel-Lebanon border uh, that had been raging. And we were due to go on holiday to Italy. And I was moving with the Israelis sort of across the border into uh, Lebanon. And I was due on a flight out of the airport that evening to go back to London. And then we were flying to go to Italy. And I managed to get back. I told Linda, see, I did it. I've made it. We're going to be on the family holiday together. And we went to Heathrow Airport and I handed over the passports I have a spare passport because I need to have one passport that at any time that isn't getting a visa or whatever. And I had left my wife's passport at home. I had taken both my passports. I had taken the kids' passports. And so I was in a bit of trouble then. What happened? well, she, she, well, no, she made one taxi driver in London the happiest man in the world when she said it's to Hampstead in North London and wait and return. And he went, yes. <laughs> you know, so so she went. So she went with my son uh, to go and get her passport. And um, my my daughter and I were put on the flight and we we met in Milan a bit later on that day. So there is there are loads of stories like that of the chaos of getting back for things and trying to, you we know. We had a bit of that when you were growing up. So, so Jesse's dad is John Ware, who you might yes. know yeah. of, and um, <laughs> that we were often going on holiday on our own. Well, yeah, and he would join us later because... He nearly missed my birth, no? Yeah, he was doing the miners' strike when you were born. Um, I went on my honeymoon on my own. That is so he depressing. Was doing, he was doing well, I, we, we, went, we went on holiday with another family down to Cornwall when I got a call about the tsunami. And, <gasps> and so we were going to spend, we were all going to spend New Year's together in this sort of, you know, on the, out on the moors, uh, roaring log fires, except I went back to London the next day and got on a plane to Sri Lanka and, you know, and, and covered 
the horrible events unfolding in the tsunami. So, yeah, look, things get disrupted. But my narrative is still, I was there for all the key events. All the events, important and that's... things, yeah. <laughs> so you're in Washington now and your wife is back in England. Yeah, she's here at the moment. She came over because we wanted to be together when we heard about the birth okay. of the grandchild. Nice. So she's here at the moment. And then, uh, yeah, so she's got a very elderly mother and she just felt that she needed to be... A, a year ago, she moved back uh, to London because she's got a very elderly mother. I thought I'd be on the road endlessly uh, for the US election and we had sort of various plans to meet and all plans got trashed by coronavirus. And so, you know, it's been a year where I've sort of thought I would never be in this apartment at all and I've been here virtually non-stop uh, because of the restrictions on travel. So, look, everyone has had a tough year. Everyone has got, you know, and, you know, touch wood, the family as well and that's what all that matters. So how long will you stay on in Washington for? Oh, I don't how know. How much longer? Here. Well, I, I, not that much longer, I think. I think that uh, two reasons. I mean, one, you know, normally an appointment as a foreign correspondent is for two years and then it gets renewed for another two years. I've been here nearly seven years now. So I've overstayed my welcome. Um, I think well, everyone come, just loves your seen it the, all. The work yeah. you do. Well, look, I have se- I have reported on half the impeachments in the whole of US <laughs> history. <laughs> which is another way of saying I have covered the four years of Donald Trump, which journalistically has been the most amazing experience and but challenging uh, uh, though yeah i mean look it's cha- it's exhausting and exhilarating and you never know what's going to happen next and you never know what will unfold and then you kind of get um joe biden come in and it's calm and it's quiet and he's boring. not tweeting now uh, you, well you may say that <laughs> lenny i couldn't possibly comment uh, yeah like you're on holiday but I can remember you sitting in the press corps and standing up to talk to Donald Trump, or the president then, and he had it in for the BBC at that time. Yeah. And, he, and you stood up and he said, hmm, another beauty. And he was so rude to you. And I don't know how you didn't jump over and grab him by the throat. Well, do you know what? I was absolutely determined that I wasn't going to back down, but I wasn't going to do what a lot of the American journalists have done, which is to think, right, I'm in a fight now. And so I just very politely said, we're free, fair and impartial. Um, (laughs) And he goes, yeah, we'd like CNN. And I go, uh, (laughs) well, we can banter back and forth. And then the conversation carried on and eventually he said, stop, stop. I know who you are. And and then I got text messages from my kids saying, he knows who you are. (laughs) (laughs) Does he know who you are, John? uh, I think he knows that I, I, I he think he knows that I'm the Brit who asks stroppy questions uh, from the briefing room because all during the start of COVID, he was giving these briefings and to keep the the briefing room at the White House safe, they only allowed you know eleven or twelve journalists in at a time. And Donald Trump, because he was bored out of his mind and was desperate to be on TV, would come into the briefing room for literally an hour and a half, two hours. And just shoot the breeze. And you'd be asking him multiple questions. And he could never understand why we were asking difficult questions. Why couldn't we just be lovely to him? And the fact of the matter is, you know, we've got a job to do, which is to find out what is going on. And not to be either be a cheerleader or to be an opponent, but just to ask journalistic questions. So Donald Trump, you ended up spending quite a lot of time with him during this period. And it was really odd because he needed the attention. He needs to be in the spotlight. And he, it's almost like he doesn't mind whether it's good or it's bad, 
but he just needs to command everyone's attention and for him to be the person that everyone is talking about. So attention's like oxygen for him. Yeah, we were his ventilator. Yeah. We were, <laughs> you know, to give it a COVID metaphor, was anyone ever less suited to be Donald Trump's ventilator <laughs> than a bunch of reporters uh, like us? But that's what he wanted. And because, you know, heads of state were no longer visiting, he was no longer travelling, he wasn't going around the world, he wasn't doing his rallies in this early stages. And so he just wanted to come to have anywhere to talk. And so he came to the briefing room on a nightly basis and it was unreal. And I was, so I was there that night where he talks about maybe we could inject disinfectant. Oh, God. And yeah. I was there that and I was thinking, has he really just said that? I, I, I kind of think it must be one of the most one of the less interesting jobs as a press officer to be the press officer for Domestos Bleach. But that night, that night, the press officer for the American version of Domestos, uh, a thing called Clorox, is issuing a release overnight saying, whatever you do, do not listen to the president of the United States. Please ignore him. Could that guy have ever imagined when he went into work the previous day that that's what he'd be doing? I mean, you spent so much time with him. I just, you know, this this podcast is about many things, but predominantly about food. Did he ever kind of host? Was there any food, snacks, drinks? Did he ever have anything particular that he needed on his rider? Oh, my God, on his rider? It, yeah, Diet Coke, chicken wings, Max and fries. Oh, wow, I mean, the, the contradictions there are so so, so So he's, he's teetotal. Why is that? Did his father have an alcohol problem? No, I think he, he had a brother who died who was an alcoholic. OK. So he's not even drunk when he says these things. <laughs> no. You may say that again. I couldn't possibly comment with my BBC hat on. Uh, no, yeah, he was, he was absolutely sober. I mean, he did once make a very good self-deprecating joke. He said, I'm teetotal. I mean, can you imagine what I'd be like if I was drunk? You know, this is me sober. So the, the food, his food tastes are extremely simple. And, you know, there were times when American football teams or whatever uh, would come in. And in the Obama years, so I used to go to the Obama Christmas parties, and the, the tables would be groaning with the most delicious food cooked by the White House chefs. When Donald Trump held events for, you know, visiting football teams or baseball teams or whatever, it would be chicken wings, fries... <laughs> You know, that was that was the it, it was about as interesting as Megan Trainor's choice of food when she came on Table Manners. <laughs> no comment. <gasps> oh, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Pizza and pizza. So you pizza don't think Melania pizza. was knocking up a little um, Slovenian national dish? Uh, my, my guess would be not. Did you ever meet Melania? No, I didn't. I didn't meet. I would have loved to have met Melania. Yeah. I mean, I, there are a lot. You know, look, she's a very interesting woman she's also you know she's quite litigious as well so you have to be pretty yeah, careful yeah, yeah. about what you say and the only t it's very interesting in america all the news organizations are covered by the first amendment which is freedom of speech and you can more or less say what you like and you will never get done for libel the only two news organizations that melania trump has sued while she was first lady and successfully was the daily mail and the daily telegraph because they don't have First Amendment rights. Melania is able to look after herself. I think the idea that was put around that Melania was this sort of... Free Melania. Rather feeble, yeah. free Melania, blink if you can hear us. I think that was wider the mark. I think she could look after herself yeah. pretty well. And, you know, there were one or two incidents where she got involved in so a pretty, some pretty brutal political knife fights and saw off people who she didn't like, who she felt were undermining her. And, you know, look, it's a, it was a complex, 
everything about the Trump White House was unbelievably complicated. You know, so Ivanka, the daughter who's senior advisor to the president, doesn't get on with Melania. There is rivalry between the East Wing and the West Wing. And, you know, there it was a complicated dynamic working in the Trump White House, to put it mildly. I've read your book. Well, first of all, congratulations. It's a brilliant book. And, and did you. you, have you always kept a diary? Because the amount of detail you'd have had to have kept a diary to. No, I did. I haven't always kept a diary. And it was it was quite a tough discipline to make sure that you wrote it and kept up to date with it. Because obviously there's no point if you, you if you leave it for four or five days, you forget that intense feeling or the colour or the moment or where you were when you heard it. And so the, it starts to blur. And so I kept a diary pretty much every night. And of course, when I started writing the diary, I thought it would be a conventional, I thought it would, I thought it would be an election of planes, trains and automobiles, me rushing to here, rushing to there, Iowa, New Hampshire, wherever, wherever, wherever. Um, and, you know, eating dinners in kind of crappy, airport restaurants where there is very little on offer instead of which the whole story changed because of covid and lockdown and you know the kind of sense of also set that very powerful sense of family being so dislocated and you know so i had my wife living and daughter living in london i was living here in the us my son was in australia and we couldn't get to we couldn't get towards to each other and so that was tough. Um, and so the book changed. But it was also a story about how, you know, Donald Trump, I think, when I started writing it, I thought would absolutely easily win the election. And how COVID came along. And because of his really erratic handling of it. And I think the American people who were might have been minded to vote for him on the basis that, you know, the economy was looking good, just thought, this is too chaotic. I can't do it. And so voted for Joe Biden instead. Did he really have COVID, do you think? Yes, I do. You do? I, I, oh, I remember that night, um, you know, being woken at 1.30 in the morning. I love it when London always ring you in the middle of the night, the news desk <laughs> in London, and they say, uh, you know, it's two o'clock in the morning. Have we woken you up? No, I was just partying, actually. <laughs> no, you know, what you, I, I've just, just come in from a rave. Or you know, I'm just going for a jog. Um, and they told me that he'd got COVID. I think that... Donald Trump knew that he would look weak going to hospital and he hates looking weak. The White House has got a fully equipped surgery. Uh, there are 24-7 doctors and nurses on duty in the White House. Very different from Boris getting sick at, check, uh, at number 10 when there are no doctors or nurses. Mm. I mean, it was almost negligent, the lack of attention there is to our prime minister compared to the president. So unless he was really sick, they would have treated him at the White House and wouldn't have taken him to Walter Reed. But I mean, I, you know, that, that day on the Sunday, he was taken on the Friday and on the Sunday I'm, I'm doing a live for the news and suddenly Donald Trump is on a COVID, he's, he's going up and down Wisconsin <laughs> Avenue on a COVID joyride. And you think, I can't make, you can't make this up. Um, and he's, you know, passing within about four or five feet of where I'm standing <laughs> and sort of waving out the window. You're like, and get away. <laughs> and I've, I've done politics. Look, I've done politics, you know, for 30 years in my BBC career. I have never seen anything or reported on anything like Donald Trump. And I'm pretty sure 
won't you do anything like it again. No. So what's the food like in Washington? Uh, you mentioned Cafe Milano. Ah, uh, yeah. The place to go. Yeah, Milano's a great place. Um, I, 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 my general take on American food. Okay, I'm, I'm going to get in huge trouble now. I think the really top end food is fantastic. So yeah. if you and but wow, will you pay a lot of money for it? Um, and there are some lovely restaurants in Washington, like Milano. And there's a fabulous place called Lutis, which has just opened uh, up the road. And because of COVID, they have in, they've been, been told they can install on the roadway, on the road. So they've blocked off one lane and they've installed a series of greenhouses. So I've got a booking there tonight. So, they, so you sit in your own individual <laughs> greenhouse and have dinner so they've got a row of 10 greenhouses or thereabouts and they can seat four or six people and so so i've booked a greenhouse for this evening for dinner and that's, that's you take a yeah no it's fantastic and it looks really they look oh, really cozy fabulous. so you've got things like that um and there are some really amazing places in america i mean you know we when Linda was last over here, we, don't, we drove down to uh, Tennessee to the Smoky Mountains and this place called Blackberry Farm, which was, and, they, and it is a working farm where they are making the, you know, they're growing the vegetables and the herbs and all the rest of it that you then have in, for dinner in the evening. And that was exceptional. But, and, you know, and the burgers and the steaks and the fries are fantastic. But I often find that American food, it's got a drizzle of this and a jus of that. And it's got it's got too many things going on. And, you know, the the waiter comes over and very theatrically will say, well, on the menu tonight, we have got this. And, they, and it takes him 10 minutes to go through all the <laughs> complex foods that are kind of piling up. And I, I, I tend to prefer good, simple American fare because, I mean, look, the fruit and vegetables here are fantastic you know, coming from the central belt in California or whatever. And, you know, some of the fresh meat. But you have to be discerning about where you go because you can get a lot that's quite generic. Which is your favourite city to eat in? Wow, that's a... I love Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. Chicago. Well, Chicago is such a beautiful city anyway. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, if you want cities that give you a bit of a different flavour... I mean, some, Charleston is fabulous in South Carolina, oh, where, it? yeah, it's the most beautiful city. Is that where you went? To, is it Beacon Driving? Oh, no, that, that, was, uh, that was, I think that was in North Carolina. That was, that was, oh, that, I knew it was, that a Carolina. was crazy. That was where, you know, with good marketing, this restaurant would have also had an undertaker's next door because the food mountains <laughs> were so high of fries, of fried food there was no fresh vegetable and you know it was just a heart attack waiting to happen and you could have just <laughs> had you know the the undertaker's next door where you know you you would you, this is where you would go to eat your last big meal okay well on to last supper oh god yeah go. starter main pudding and drink of choice okay okay so and would it involve any fries well possibly actually i mean uh, there used to be a there used to be a restaurant change chain when i was growing up called the bernie inn and the classic was prawn cocktail steak and chips yeah. and black forest gatto now actually yeah. as a basis for a last what's wrong with what's that? wrong with that <laughs> i think that's a pretty good last meal um i mean i you know because i'm a bit more metropolitan i would probably have a ceviche to start with or something like that or oysters fresh oysters with a shallot vinaigrette 
Uh, we lived in mm. Paris for four years. So I've got, you know, from having lived in Paris uh, when I was the BBC's Paris correspondent, I've got a bit of, there's a bit of French food love there. If it's last meal, I, w- I think I would stick with the steak, medium rare, and some fries and a very crisp green salad. And I'd probably have to have some lovely uh, French or Italian cheese afterwards. Um, and it would be washed down by a very good bottle of Bordeaux that would be, you know, if, I, if, we're, if we're really talking, if we're really talking money, yeah. no object. I mean, you know, I'm going to have a lovely, either a very good Californian Cabernet Sauvignon or, and there are some fabulous, there are some fabulous wines uh, mm. to be had here. Again, expensive. Or, you know, a lovely bottle of Bordeaux, a lovely bottle of Pomerol or something like that. That would be just heaven. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I want to ask, when you are all at home as a family, which may be quite a rarity <laughs> now that your son's in awesome. Australia, who's cooking the meal and what is your family's kind of traditional dish that will just always be asked for? Okay, so who's cooking the meal? Um, Linda is cooking the meal. My wife will be cooking okay. the meal. She's got a hands up there. Although Anna, our daughter, will get involved as well because she will say... How old's Anna? Uh, she's 28. And... There, there's a big Ottolenghi influence in the house. And so there's all these crazy ingredients that, you know, go in to make one of his dishes. Um, I think, actually, if we were just talking about the standard fare of what feels like coming home, it would be a roast chicken and roast potatoes and lovely fresh vegetables and, you know, some kind of some sort of delicious dessert afterwards. That would be coming home uh food and that's very comforting but I mean you know when there's time it gets more exotic than that where did you grow up John it's a good question I I grew up uh my parents were social workers in the east end of London so I grew up the first 11 years of my life were in Stepney and that was at a time when Stepney was a place you tried to escape from rather than (laughs) oh my god it's so cool to live in Shoreditch how could Shoreditch ever be cool but it it, you know then (laughs) it wasn't and um and so they ran this Jewish youth centre that was set up um, at the time of the First World War when there was the influx of Jewish immigrants escaping the pogroms uh, from Eastern Europe. And, um, and my, my mother had been to the LSE and then went to work as this a community worker in the East End, which is where she met my dad. 
and they ran this place together. And it was really interesting because it was very ideological. It was about taking these uh, the Jewish community from Eastern Europe, and it was funded by the wealthy Sephardic Jews who had been in the UK for a long time and were terribly fearful that the influx of all these Ashkenazi Jews was going to upset everything and that what you needed to do was to provide these people with an education and teach them to be good English men and women. And the, and the youth club was called the Oxford and St George's club. Now, what could, <laughs> what could be more quintessentially English than Oxford and St. George's. And, St. George. and so, so on the one hand, I was grew up in this Jewish youth club where obviously all the food you were eating was kosher. My mother had an extraordinary background in that she was, uh, her, my grandmother was a Russian Jew, had come over and they were in northeast England. There was then some scandal and my mother was born out of wedlock and the, the scandal was such that they had to move. And so my mother was brought up on a farm in East Anglia in this Protestant community. How weird. So on the, on the one hand, my upbringing was sort of salt beef and lutkers and smoked salmon sandwiches. But my mum would also make steak and kidney pudding and suet pudding and all the quintessentially English dishes and a lot of bacon and pork as well. So it was a kind of very... <laughs> mixed upbringing that I had that it wasn't one thing or the other so I, I spent the first 11 years of my life living in this community centre so I, I grew up you know where there was a five-a-side football pitch on the roof there was a ballet rink there was a gymnasium there was a squash court and it was on you know in this area of Stepney and so that's where I spent the first 11 years of my life and then I moved to North Finchley uh, well West Finchley and uh, in, in North London Did you have a bar mitzvah? Yeah <laughs> Who did the catering? That's a good question <laughs> uh, the, the, I had a bar mitzvah and at the settlement the, 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 the building in, East, in Stepney where I grew up there was, a, there was a synagogue in the basement so I had my bar mitzvah there but the reception was at the Conservative Club in North Finchley and um, it was a lunchtime event and it was going to be, you know, my mum had insisted that it was going to be fresh salmon and boiled potatoes and yeah. asparagus and fresh strawberries. And it was, you know, it was a nice summer day. Uh, all my school friends thought that was just going to be appalling. So my mum saved up all her luncheon vouchers. She was now the director of a charity in Victoria, um, a, funnily enough, a Church of England charity. And my mother gave all my friends luncheon vouchers so they all went off to the wimpy bar to buy themselves a to buy themselves a wimpy and chips and then amazing. and then and then came back to, to eat their wimpy and chips at my bar mitzvah did you Except have a wimpy I, and chips it, or did you, you know get i wasn't salmon? bloody well allowed i had to have this poached salmon whenever i say we talk about having a party actually my son always says not poached salmon mum <laughs> quite right exactly exactly it's not party food where where will be the first place when you touch down in old Blighty and restaurants are open? Where's the first restaurant you're going to go with Linda? Oh, God. Um, I think somewhere noisy. I, I feel a need to have... Yeah, I know. I mean, you, you, just a, an atmosphere. Mm. I, I, there's an Italian restaurant and it's been there for years. Um and it's, it's become quite well known now, but Ciccone's in Burlington Gardens, which just looks so wonderfully mm. Italian. And it's got the white and black checkered, you know, marble floor and 
the crostini and everything about it is so delicious and i can just that the thought of having a negroni and some lovely italian food with a bustling atmosphere and the waiters in their white jackets coming round seems pretty fabulous alternatively it's going to be going up to the holly bush pub in Hampstead, which is, I think I first went to it when I was about 15 years old or 16 years old, uh, which is when I was, when we were hanging out, that's where we used to go. And it's still a wonderful old boozer. And just having sort of, you know, a pint of prawns or something like that and a pint of beer would just seem like absolute total heaven. And those are the bits, of course, that I miss about being in the UK. You can't get decent bacon in America and you can't get a sausage roll. And frankly, I, you know, again, I, this is my, I told you, this is my mixed upbringing. That, that, um, <laughs> good but, Jewish but kosher ba- boy. Yeah, no, I'm, good, I'm, I'm, I'm a nice this. Jewish boy. Although <laughs> all I want is a bacon sandwich with some HP sauce. That would be my oh. idea of heaven. And you can't get that sort of stuff in here. Do you bring your own tea bags over? Yes. They're so <laughs> bad in America. Tea bags, yes. Marmite, yes. Yes. Um, Branston pickle. Branston pickle. So I could I could open the fridge door now and you'd see the Branston pickle <laughs> and you would see the, you know, so the, the key bits of Britain. Actually, you can get most of it now here. You can, you know, there are shops that are international. Because Washington is such an international kind of city that most of the big supermarkets will have a, a little English section where you can buy uh, some Yorkshire tea and you can buy the smallest pot of Marmite you've ever seen and you can buy a bit of Branston pickle. I remember I put out a kind of search for Marmite when I was on tour somewhere in the States. And then for the foresee- like the future dates, everyone brought me and they were always the minute little <laughs> m- Marmites, which kind of worked because then we'd get through one and then we get to the next gig and somebody would have given me one. It was very kind. But yeah, you can kind of find them, but they are always tiny. Um, yeah. But I wanted to know, um, have either of your children wanted to go into journalism or have they stayed the hell away? Uh, well, th- neither of them are a million miles away from it. So my, f- my son's working in a TV production company in Sydney, mm-hmm. uh, and my daughter's working for TikTok. Oh, wow. <laughs> Are you on TikTok, John? Y- y- <gasps> yes-ish. Well, no, I haven't done it. I've never done a TikTok. You do do TikTok. No, I thought I was too old, but um, but, but I'm <laughs> no, loving no. this, that you are so, on so, it. So my daughter's... So I've got, I've got to say that... I adore my daughter to bits, but she's kind of, you know, she's seen me. I've had this career for 30 years and you say, um, I'm interviewing the president. And she goes, oh, that's nice. And I said, yeah, and I'm, I'm flying on Air Force One. And she goes, oh, that's good. And I said, um, you know, yeah, and uh, I'm going to be the lead on the 10 o'clock news. She said, oh, good. And I said, yeah, and I'm doing a podcast table manners. She said, you're shitting me. No way. No way. You're, oh, my God, that is sick. And uh, so, so all her girlfriends from when she was, a, they're called Fosh. They just love your podcast. So that this is, is the, really this sweet. The, so, so, so for the first time in ages. You've impressed I've her. Able to, I've impressed her. Yeah. Well, years, you're very welcome. It's been welcome, years John. I've been waiting. You're yeah. very welcome. Now, John, do you, do you have good table manners? Yes, yes, I do. I'm nicely. Would Linda up. agree with that? Uh, no, uh, she'd <laughs> say that. What? Okay. I'm, so when I was, so again, my mum. You know, you could not put a milk bottle on the table. <gasps> it had to be in a jug. You could n- butter had to be in a butter dish. There was the and food had to be beautifully presented. Um, I find I, I so I'm yes I'm very polite and very well brought up and I know which knives and forks to use and you know all the rest of it and if I was at a posh dinner which occasionally I have to attend because with the job um, I'm fine about those um, but if I see a little the first sign of a 
knife and fork being put together suggesting that someone else is finished and I see that there may be a little bit of you know meat left over or a little few fries on someone else's plate I always think that food off other people's plates contains no calories of so course I think it you're doesn't. exactly we know so, that. so we know that so you're able to take food from other people's plates and it doesn't cost you anything see that, that now, now some might say that is bad manners I think I'm helping I'm presuming you're not doing this with Joe Biden's plate, so it's all no, right. No, you should... <laughs> no, it's at home. No, it's at home. It would not be, you know, but I don't I don't mind if we're in a restaurant or, you know, oh, I fancy a bit of yours and swapping plates. I think that's all right. Oh, I don't Jessie, know whether... Well, Jessie is dream. just the same person. But I wonder whether this is a journalist thing because my dad is exactly the same. My dad will be more interested no, in my gr- plate. He's greedy, yeah. darling. He's greedy, yeah, no. We're, we're but, both greedy. Yeah. But also it's menu envy, isn't it? Yeah. So then order the whole menu and then you won't be jealous. Jesse orders everything. Oh, do you? You see, yeah, no, yeah, I yeah. should do that. You see, I think that uh, I, I look at other people's food and I think, oh, why didn't I order that? Oh, that looks well, that's so why nice. you should always get the pancakes for the side. Yeah. And then you get a little starter <laughs> of the granola thing and then you get kind of your main like yeah. thing. And then you just like, you, you just pick and you have lots of bits and bobs. When it's a big night, like election night was, is that November the 3rd? Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to step all night. What yeah. what fuels the whole night? Do you do you keep on having takeaways, or do you have sandwiches, or is someone cooking for you? <laughs> no one is cooking for me. Uh, election nights, you just actually what gets you through is adrenaline, and then you have too much coffee, and then you go all shaky and think, oh my god, I can't. I, I'm you know, I, I'm now my hands are shaking and my heart. You can feel your heart rate going up. But it's it's broadly the adrenaline that keeps you going. And, you know, normally there'll be a, a blueberry muffin that you will say, I'm not going to eat that. And then you find yourself nibbling at it. And then you have something oh, savoury and then you have something sweet and then you have some coffee and then you have a Diet Coke. And then you keep broadcasting. And before you know it, it's you know six o'clock in the morning and you get two hours sleep because then you've got to start cutting uh, for the six o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news. And, you know, and you just keep going all the time that you have to and you're grazing i mean i'm just grazing on whatever is around a little bit of cheese a packet of crisps you know all that rubbish you like champagne though don't you no i hate it yeah okay i do <laughs> look there's no there's, there, is, there is no situation so bad that isn't made a little bit better by a nice glass of champagne absolutely and you know and oh my god there have been very very few occasions over the past year where there has been an excuse to drink champagne. So when an excuse comes along, like a grandchild last night, we may have popped a cork of uh, Paul Roger and had a lovely, you know, bottle of champagne uh, between us that had been waiting for the moment. So, yeah, a a nice glass of champagne. I I do think it does make things feel somehow uh, special. You don't drink it every night because then it would become commonplace. But I think every now and then... yeah. Just to have a flute of champagne, there is nothing nicer. No, I agree. Um, John, it's been such a pleasure to chat to you and just hear the insider info and just your unprecedented is out now. Yes. It's out, yep. And everyone can read about his experience. I've loved it. And but also just yeah, it's been a pleasure to watch you on the telly with such kind of energy and just you were so brilliant during well, 
you're always brilliant but it's just it's always I don't know it feels like you're speaking I know you're impartial and it's BBC and everything but it's kind of yeah that everything about it is so brilliant it's always a pleasure to see you on the screens what's next for you now that you you are potentially going to leave DC yeah where will you go next I wanted to ask one other thing because Americast has been so brilliant your podcast will you you won't carry it on now or will you these are these are all big questions that you ask. Yeah. And I don't want to be in any way a politician or evasive or, well, time will tell and I'm looking at whatever opportunities may come along and present themselves. I don't, look, I don't know. The podcast has been a huge success that I do with Emily Maitlis and she and I have known each other for years and we have a laugh and a giggle together. But hopefully deliver something that's, you know, a bit intelligent and accessible as well. Um, there'll be something around that. I'm sure I won't just give up being in front of a microphone altogether. But I, honestly, you know, what tops what I've been doing for the last four years of covering the Trump presidency, um, just as an amazing story, an amazing experience to cover. And so I've got to figure that out. But, you know, it, and maybe it's time to come back to the UK, you know, be able to go to the Hollybush pub and the few nice places that I love. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure it out at the moment. Lastly, yeah. what is your karaoke song, John? And do you do karaoke? You know, funnily enough, when Max got married, I, the lads took me out on the stag night and I had to do karaoke. And I think I did um, Born to Run, Bruce Springsteen. Oh, oh, very good. I love, I love, I love Springsteen. And I've seen him play a variety, you know, kind of all over the place uh, when we lived in Paris, when I was in London, here in the US. And so um, it would be me doing an appalling attempt at, you know, high energy Asbury Park, New Jersey sound of uh, of Bruce, um, you know, with Steve Van Zandt on guitar and all the rest of it. Yeah. I think that sounds pretty great in rock and roll. Yeah. Um, John Topol, it's been such a pleasure to chat so to you. Delightful. Thank you very much. Muzzle off on the birth Thank of your you. granddaughter. I hope you have a lovely dinner in the greenhouse tonight <laughs> on the road. I mean, it all sounds quite I'll send you a photo. I love it. Yes, yeah, please do. do. And, uh, and congratulations with your book. Thank you very much indeed. It's been lovely talking to you. could have just kept talking he's so brilliant so interesting you want him at a dinner party don't you would have loved to have had him over for dins i didn't even get half my questions in about mum wrote questions today such a fascinating man could have spoken to him about every port he's been in and just loved chatting to him and loved the idea of a really nice man yeah really loved him yeah really kind of genuine and lovely so I want to be going out for dinner tonight with him and Linda I'd go in a glass house wouldn't you yeah I'd go in a bloody shed honestly I would as well I'd go in anything yeah I'd go anywhere anyway um, John Sopal the book Unprecedented is out now Americast is out go and listen to it go and read the book he's fascinating he's brilliant that was such a pleasure to chat to him thank you for listening hope you're all okay and we'll see you next week Mum, do you want to say bye to your fans? Oh, bye, fans. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening. The music you've heard on Table Manners is by Peter Duffy and Pete Fraser. Table Manners is produced by Alice Williams. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.